Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope you all had a great weekend. This past weekend, it was back to reality. After spending a week in Hawaii, I was home for a couple days this weekend, and now today, I'm off to Moncton, New Brunswick for two days of work, uh, Wednesday and Thursday. But I've got the day two grading from the inside out virtual training on Tuesday, so it's a busy week, uh, but back to Canada, back to the realities of what the weather is like in April. Certainly when you're in a place like Hawaii, you can lose track of what month it is and uh, because the weather kind of throws you. Uh, not that that's a problem, okay? I'm not complaining, uh, but certainly uh, it does throw you when it comes to trying to remember that, oh yes, it's April. So uh, just a wonderful opportunity to work with the school over there. A reminder that there is still time to register for one of the upcoming events this spring and summer. Grading from the inside out two-day training will be in San Antonio at the end of the month, April 25th and 26th. Standards-based learning in action will also be right after that in San Antonio, April 27th and 28th. And if you're looking for a summer conference, the annual conference on assessment and grading, that'll be in Austin, Texas, July 18th through the 20th. Along with myself, the conference will feature Cassie Erkins, Angie Fries, Garnet Hillman, Mandy Stalitz, Katie White, and Tony Reibel, who is today's guest. So all of the information about those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. Links in the show notes, as you know, so you can check that out if you're interested in joining us in Austin this July. As I always say, thanks for tuning in again this week. A huge welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Thanks for checking this podcast out. And a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate you as well. As I said, this week my guest is my friend and colleague Tony Reibel. Tony is the co-author of several books, including the latest publication, which is Small Changes, Big Impact, 10 Strategies to Promote Student Efficacy and Lifelong Learning. So that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. And in Assessment Corner this week, I want to highlight what I think is the single most underutilized formative assessment strategy out there. It's so simple and yet so impactful. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Tony Reibel is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by sharing with you what I think is the most condescending expression anyone can use. I've had this expression used on me, and I'm sure it's been used on you, and everyone knows exactly what the message is. And guess what? It ain't positive. Oh, yeah, the words sound positive, but the tone is always condescending. What's the expression? Must be nice. Honestly, just saying that right now in the hypothetical makes my blood boil. Oh, you went to Mexico for spring break. Must be nice. Oh, you guys are building a house. Yeah, wow, must be nice. Oh, you, you don't spend much time on the weekends working. Mm, must be nice. Ugh, like I said, I hate even saying it in the, this hypothetical. You know what, Brad? It is nice. And I'm not going to apologize for it, and none of you should apologize for it either. This expression, must be nice, is nothing but two things. First, it's a pity party. Oh, I have it so hard, you have it so easy, must be nice to have it so easy or so good or so whatever. And two, it's kind of a shot. It's a shot at you. Like somehow, you've got it easier, you don't work as hard. How come you have it so easy, or how come you don't have to work as hard as I do? Honestly, I cannot... Stand, you probably tell, I cannot stand it when people use this expression. I used to hear 
Some of my former administrator colleagues used this expression, and it was honestly nauseating. This sort of undercurrent of competition about whose school is the toughest and, and how long you spent at school on the weekends, how long you spend at school on the evenings and weekends as a measurement of how good a leader you are is the single biggest piece of bullshit leadership propaganda that's been peddled for years. The idea that the longer you spend at school, the more effective you are. Nope, not even close. I've never been impressed by that. Never. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. As a leader, you have to put in the time. You have to put in the hours. And sometimes you do need to work longer hours and in the evenings. And sometimes you got to work on weekends to get the job done. I'm not denying that. I did it myself for years. It's the job and that's all there is to it. But when you hear somebody say, oh, you don't spend that much time at school on the weekends. Hmm, must be nice. You see, I have it so bad. That's the pity party. And you have it so easy, or you don't work as hard as me. That's the dig. Yeah. Must be nice. How? How, Susan? How must it be nice? It's nice. Is it nice for me to be so efficient with my time that I don't have to spend all weekend getting caught up on the work that I could have got done during the week? Yeah, it is. It's nice. It's actually really nice. And I'm not going to apologize for that. You want to impress me? Tell me or show me how efficient you are while still being effective. Show me that. Time on task matters, yes, to a point, but time on task is not akin to effectiveness, and we all know it. And walking around like Eeyore, like, oh, must be nice. I mean, it's it, it just absolutely does nothing but drive a wedge between relationships and, and have people start to develop this kind of resentment amongst each other. Let's flip this around and think about a teacher and a principal conversation, right? Imagine the teacher goes to the principal and says, I'm going to take a personal day on Thursday. And the principal says, oh, for what? And the teacher just says, you know, um, well, it's kind of personal. Um, I just need the day and I haven't used any of my three that were allowed in our contract. And the principal says, oh, wow, must be nice to just be able to take a day off whenever you want to. You know what, Chuck? It is nice. It's actually in our contract. You have a different job. You have a different contract. You want a personal days? Then negotiate those and stop trying to make me feel guilty for what I'm allowed to do. Like I'm not naive to the fact that all of our circumstances are not the same. Some people do have it better or worse or whatever. I get it. It's not all the same. Some schools are tougher. Some classes are more challenging. I'm not debating that at all. But what exactly is the point of saying, must be nice? There are zero positive outcomes to that expression. Because if you were trying to be happy for someone, truly happy for them, you wouldn't say, must be nice right? Try it. Try it right now. I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to think about if you were truly happy for me, what would you say? If I said to you, oh, we're taking a trip to Paris this summer, what would you say to that? You wouldn't say, oh, wow, must be nice. If you were happy for me, you'd say, wow, fantastic. How long are you going for? Where are you staying? What are you most looking forward to? There's exactly zero chance you would say, must be nice. Now, if you're someone who uses that expression, must be nice, stop it immediately. Please stop using that expression. If you think the person you're saying that to is going to respond in any positive way to you or lean into your plight, then you are living in a fantasy land. If it truly is positive, if you truly want to know how I spend less time at work on the weekends or how we paid off our mortgage or how we afforded that trip to Paris then ask. Ask the question. But that's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. Because 
if we ask the question, then we're sort of admitting that the other person does it more effectively or knows more or is more efficient or more effective at their job or more responsible financially or whatever it is. So rather than admit that, we do the opposite, right? We think to ourselves, well, you're not better than me. You're not more efficient than me. You're not more effective than me. You got dealt a hand that's easier. It's not you. It's your cushy circumstance or situation. Now, I know some people are dealt a raw deal in life, but that's not really the context to which I'm referring here. I'm talking about friends and colleagues and people who are generally in the same circumstances as you. People with whom you would actually share some of your good news or people that are kind of in that same situation or circumstances or the facts of your work or whatever it is. Now, I'm not saying that every person in every friend group is in the same situation, but my point is that I'm not talking about the abstract, yes, there are, there are people in the world who have been dealt a very raw deal, and, and that's a different conversation. But I'm talking about people generally in your sphere that you have these conversations with at work or kind of in your peer group or whatever the case might be. Must be nice. It is the most condescending expression anyone can use. And in many ways, it's actually about our ego. It, it really does. Now, now, I know that when we think about ego, we often think about arrogance and the whole, I'm better than you. But what I've come to know about ego and what I think I've come to know anyway is that ego is really just about separation. In any situation or circumstances, when you try to create separation, try to create differences, then it, that is your ego at play. Sometimes it means I'm better than you, but sometimes that difference or separation comes from the, from the idea that I have it worse than you, right? Anytime we try to separate ourselves from one another in either direction, that is our ego at work. Like I have it better than you, or I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, I'm more capable than you. That's ego, right? But even when you say, you have it better than me, your situation is cushy, you've been dealt an easier hand, that's also ego. It's anytime we try to separate ourselves. Highlighting or accentuating differences is a surefire way to recognize that your ego is at play. Somehow you've got it different. Either different meaning better, or different meaning worse, right? Must be nice. Must be nice is just a passive-aggressive, condescending expression used by those who want to play the victim and feed their egos about how much worse they have it. Here this week for the interview is Tony Reibel. Uh, Tony hails from Adlai Stevenson High School in Illinois and is currently the assistant principal for teaching and learning. Tony is also the co-author of several books about proficiency-based learning, proficiency-based assessment, instruction, proficiency-based grading, uh, you name it, proficiency-based. Tony is all over it uh, in the content areas and also pathways to proficiency. So a tremendous number of books. Uh, Tony is also an associate with our Solution Tree Assessment Center uh, team. And we love having Tony as part of that team. His most recent publication is Small Changes, Big Impact, a collaboration he wrote with co-author Matt Thede. And that is where we're going to start today. So Tony, great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Good to yeah. see you. 
Yeah, great to see you. Uh, great to have you back on the podcast. Now, full disclosures, listeners, I wrote an endorsement for the book that we're about to talk about. So uh, it appears on the back cover of the book. So clearly, uh, I'm a fan and I liked it. So uh, happy to have Tony here to talk about the book because I love some of the ideas and we're going to dive right in to some of those topics in a moment. But I want to start, Tony, with your uh, education journey. You know, before we sure. get into the book, uh, let's talk about your professional journey, the resumes, different roles you've you've held. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I was actually in the business world for a couple of years, um, started off as a programmer and had a programming and a Spanish degree out of college. And I went the programming route and um, was there for a few years. But then I started coaching and I said, ah, I need to go be a teacher. So uh, got, went to night school, worked full-time, went to night school, got my teaching cert and, um, uh, ended up, uh, at Stevenson. And I've been here 14 years, uh, started as a Spanish teacher, um, then moved to director of assessment where, you know, uh, spent a lot of time researching assessment work and that's where the books came from. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and now I'm assistant principal. So still teaching and learning, still same proficiency work, but now I do master schedule, which is uh, a beast in itself. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's, that's it. I, you know, I've, uh, Stevenson is, you know, uh, referred to often as the birthplace PLC. So, you know, I live and breathe that every day and uh, I've been fortunate to be here for this long. So, yeah. So 14 years, uh, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the culture of the school, obviously there's been a, uh, a who's who of, of superintendents and administrators through yeah. the school, but during your 14 years, um, who, who might've been some of the, the, the major influences on you as you sort of grew into your role and have changed roles. Have you been at that school? Yeah, actually my first year, uh, Dr. Tim Kainold was superintendent. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, he would speak during the, you know, all staff days, and I was like, wow, this, this guy's impressive. And, uh, this culture, this school is alive and vibrant. And it was a really awesome experience. My first year, a mm -hmm. lot of energy here. A lot of people, I think more importantly, a lot of people rowing in the same direction. Right. Yeah. Like it, 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 it's just observable. You could feel it. But so that aside, uh, I didn't learn a lot from Tim cause he left the next year. He, mm -hmm. uh, he retired. And then Dr. Eric Twaddell became our superintendent and still is. Yeah. Uh, and um, he's been a, an amazing influence on my career. I mean, writing those books, I remember him saying to me like, yeah, but how do you define it? And then I would say somebody be like, no, define it more. Right. And he challenged my language, my ideas. And I think he, you know, was a big influence on, uh, uh, you know, my career and what I do now as an administrator. And with that, you know, uh, Troy Gobble is our principal. He's, yeah. uh, you know, presents nationally as well. And he's an amazing person and leader. And I've learned a ton from him. So, yeah, there's been, you know, and, and uh, Rick DeFore, you know, he was here long before I got here. But, um, you know, he came back and saw him speak and talked to him, you know, and gave me some advice, you know, just in, in the few moments I got to talk to him. But yeah. uh, still, it was, you know, this just who's who of leadership has kind of gone through this place. And um, I'm fortunate to have learned from them. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, I was going to mention that that for those not familiar with uh, at least Stevenson High School, that prior to Tim Kainel, uh Rick Dufour was the superintendent there as well. So Rick, um, you know, who has um, you know sadly passed away, but but with Tim and with Eric, there is a, a definitely a national profile at Stevenson that that many of us are are certainly aware of and and inspired by, to be honest. So uh, wonderful that you have a chance to sort of grow through the different roles in that school. Okay, let's let's talk about small changes. Uh, sure big impact. Um, what what was the motivation behind me? And I read the book. I love the book. Um, what was the motivation? What Where did you and Matt get the inspiration for uh, for the book? And what, what motivated you to write it? Yeah. So um, just to uh, say his last name is pronounced Tady, Matt. Tady. Oh, Tady. I apologize. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Yeah. So Matt Tady. Um, so we were, um, so I was director of assessment. This was maybe Oh gosh, like eight years ago at this point. Mm -hmm. And we were starting to move to an evidence-based grading model, which is, you know, influence from you, read your book, you know, um, uh, uh, grading from the inside out and got a lot of ideas about, you know, intervention and assessment. So like, you know, there took a lot of information over those eight years and we started working on challenging our grading practices and, um, uh, it was, we were calling it evidence-based grading. So using evidence to judge proficiency and standards and give grades from that, right? <clears throat> um, so Matt had visited in a site visit uh, at Stevenson uh, and uh, came into my office after and he's like, oh, I love this grading system. I wanna do it at my school. So we had a three-year collaboration um, uh, online. I went out there a few times to talk to him and his staff and uh, he took the ideas and principles that we were doing here to make our evidence-based grading system work. Uh, and he implemented within those three years, he implemented evidence-based grading in his high school and middle school. And I was like floored and impressed that like, he took it from you know, zero to hundred percent in three years and got buy-in from his staff and was getting good stories from his students about how they liked it and it was beneficial and all this. So he called me up and he said, you know, I think I've got an interesting story to tell about my journey through this because we're in the middle of Iowa. It's a rural community. Um, change is not always welcome here. You know, like it's just, I think we did something special. And I said, all right, well, what did you do? And he's like, well, there's really 10 things I kept saying over and over and over again to um, my staff. And, uh, and those were kind of like the 10 principles we followed. And those were the takeaways that he had from our work. And I said, well, let's give it a shot. And that's the story. So it was these yeah. 10 things and we called them, he, he was referring to them as small changes that had big impact. And yeah. I know that, you know, uh, the title of the book and, you know, these, these small changes are, you know, just perspective shifts, like, yeah. um, you know, defining success as self-reliance and things like that. So right. Right. Um, that was the, that was really it, just an ongoing three-year collaboration. And he wanted to tell a story about it. how we had success with it. So fantastic. Again, apologies to Matt. Uh, listeners, you would not know this, but uh, I was a little rushed in getting to this interview today. And as a result of that, of course, there's always an oversight, uh, but I do apologize uh, to Matt for mispronouncing his name. That's never uh, fun to hear or have someone do that. It's interesting, uh, uh, Tony, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, as I read the book, um, small changes. I'm like, these aren't small. These are some fairly significant shifts in mindsets. So, 
so again, maybe help me understand your perspective or Matt's perspective. Why why are you referring to them as small changes? Because some of these, and listeners, you're about to hear this. We're going to dig into some very important topics. Why why do you refer to them as small changes? Yeah, and I think they're small changes in mindset. Okay. Um, I'm, you know, they're paradigm shifts in some respect. Okay. But it's a small shift, and I, you know, that kind of came from my experience with these, right? Like, um, oh, you know, student achievement is not success. Student achievement is a helping a kid become self-reliant. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a small, like, shift in language, but it had mm-hmm. huge impact on the way we approach teaching and learning and grading. Right. Right. And Matt made those same shifts, like, oh, okay. yeah, you know, let's, def- let's look at success as that. Yeah. You know, I, what yeah. I say to a lot of my staff and schools that I work with and teachers there, I say, don't consider yourself a math teacher or a science teacher. Mm-hmm. Consider yourself a teacher who uses science or math to build a self-reliant student and mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a small shift in language, just rearranging some words, but it, it has that, you know, uh, impact that we were looking for. So. Right. Right. So as you, yeah, and, and certainly a book that's called, you know, big changes or massive changes, not going to sell very well. <laughs> People can look at that and go, I don't know about these big changes, 10 massive changes to your teaching practice, you know, 10 ways to overhaul everything you do. That's probably not going to, uh, but I want to pick up on that, um, that idea. Cause, cause you, you write in the book that too many schools equate success with achievement. Let's, let's talk a little bit more intimately about this idea of um, self-reliance, resiliency, setting up for lifelong learning. You challenge that notion in the book and you say that we need to redefine student success uh, as, as something else. So, so tell us again how we redefine success and why that's so critical, why that's such a critical part of, of how a school can shift that paradigm. Yeah, I think, you know, um, one thing I said to our board last summer at our uh, board meeting, I said, you know, we have a proxy paradox right? In education. We have metrics that stand in for success because they're easy to measure. They're efficient to measure. Um, We can make somewhat logical assumptions about kids learning um, from those metrices. And I think, you know, it's easy to stay and look at that as success, you know, an SAT score or some trend scores on our final exam data, you know, it's, it's, those are easy to measure. Um, it's hard to measure self-reliance. It's hard to measure advocacy. It's hard to measure um, some of the competencies, like um, how well you argue and make mm-hmm. an argument. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of you know, uh, uh, nuance to that that's hard to quantify. Um, and we end up, I think, in education mind, and what we said in the book was we uh, kind of sidestep that goal of building a self-reliant, self-sustaining um, um, uh, person. I mean, Paulo Freire talks about in his research, like, um, you know, uh, he wrote back in the 70s and 80s, and he says that the goal of education should be to prepare someone for a self-managed life. Mm-hmm. And I love that phrase because that should be the goal. I mean, we have you know, four years with kids, you know, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. And we have our expertise and our own efficacy and um, experiences that we can help kids learn how to become a, a person who can manage their life. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So yeah, I think it's just, to me, it's a proxy paradox. I mean, we let things stand in for success because they're easy to measure. And I think it's, it's time, in my opinion, that we move to, you know, uh, measuring some of the things that matter uh, to that to that self-reliant individual. So you got an idea or a strategy about how, so somebody listening right now is thinking to themselves, okay, I'm with you, Tony. Uh, let's, let's look at self-reliance. Let's talk about those things that truly matter. Can you give us maybe an example or two of, you know, a way that you might do that? Uh, you know, I think, um, uh, well, as far as mission statements or as far as, your no, as far as, as far as the, the, the idea of, uh, you know, how we, how would we measure that if we need to change how we define success and we need to measure what matters, what are some ideas about how we might do that? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the bigger things is to great, make your grading, uh, meaning give grades that represent competency in skills that, that connect to self-reliance. Okay. Let me talk about that for a second. Sure. Um, so our grading system, each of our courses has between three to five skills that kids have to master to get an A, B, C, D, you know, depending on how, what their level of mastery is. Right. But those skills are connected to that idea of self-reliance. So math class is simplify, solve, analyze, create representations. And you talk about it in your books and Cassie Erkins as well. Like, you know, we want, we want endurance leverageable, you know, transferable skills to kind of lead our curriculum and grading. And um, when we started our change, it was, that was the key connection to that idea of self-reliance is we don't want to give grades off of situational learning or, you know, situational content and averaging all that together. Cause that, doesn't necessarily connect to that idea of building an, a, a, um, you know, a, a self-motivated, self-sustaining person. So, but the skill of argumentation mm -hmm. is in our science class, in our social studies class, in our English class, and kids, that skill follows them. And then we give a grade based off of the competence in that skill. Mm -hmm. So that, 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 that would be my first, that would, sorry, that would just no. be my first um, thought on that. Yeah, I love that because it is something that we often talk about in terms of the, you know, the transferability and the importance that these skills are universal across many subjects and, and being able to make argument or analyze data or whatever the, the competency might be in, under the umbrella of critical thinking is, is sustainable, it's potentially transferable, and it's an opportunity to have students start to become those competencies. We often talk about the idea that we don't want you to do critical thinking, we want you to become a critical thinker. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's, yeah. that's the key of, 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 of moving uh, students away from doing school to becoming that which they are learning for sure. Yeah. Um, another strategy I, I really, that jumped out at me when I read the book, uh, was this idea of a generative learning model sure. um, for instruction. So from your perspective, when, when you and Matt wrote the book and, and thinking about what are some of the characteristics that you would recognize in a generative learning model? And as a teacher, how, how would I get started, uh, you know, doing that, yeah. creating the um, classroom? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that concept isn't mine or Matt's yeah. that's yeah. Uh, that generative learning concept comes from the book, make it stick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Brown um, is the primary author on it. Uh, but that book kind of kickstarted this idea of maybe Madeline Hunter's gradual release model needs to be challenged a little bit, mm -hmm. right? Needs to be thought about where we do that, not as like everything we do all the time. So generative learning, you know, what we do with, 
that model is student does something first mm -hmm. and then the teacher reacts to that. So they could be 30 seconds of thinking. It could be, you know, writing a two paragraph, you know, one page thing, and then using that to react, you know, as evidence to react to and, and mold the learning after that. So it's, it's really a student does first model. And I would say the more you can get students to do something before you teach and direct, the more they're going to have um, kind of a current state of learning to relate what you're saying to, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they, you know, in the, in, in when looking at the gradual release model, it has its place, we still do it. But mm -hmm. the bulk of our, our instruction is student does and then teacher reacts to that evidence that's coming from that student. And okay. then they're able to self-generate that initial step, which is what we liked about that that theory of practice. Mm -hmm. Would you would you then contrast when talking about Madeline Hunter? I know that there's many of us who have nightmares about figuring out an anticipatory set and <laughs> and, and closure. But like, who, has, who has who has time for closure? Like, where does this come from? Oh, I've got six minutes left in the lesson. I've I've got more time than I needed. Okay, in conclusion, everyone, you know, it doesn't happen. We know that, yeah. but contrast for me the idea of the student does first with the anticipatory set is it that the anticipatory set is still teacher-centered and that yeah. you see it as is that the way you contrast yep. those yeah yeah the anticipatory sets set still seen to me to us to me yeah teacher-centric still okay okay um, so you, sometimes you, it's too so, sorry sometimes no. it's too like essential questiony you know like there's you know that it kind of sits in that world too mm -hmm. uh and that, you know, uh, we want the kids doing something first, thinking, observing, um, um, writing, producing, doing something. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the difference. So, yeah, yeah. I would agree. It's two yeah. teachers. Yeah. yeah. So having them generate their ideas, having them sort of get some experience, even some productive lack of success, productive failure, as yeah. we often refer to. Yeah. Hey, that didn't work for me. Or I didn't come up with a great idea. But now I'm I'm going to immerse myself uh, in into that learning for sure. So is that is 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 it as simple as saying if you want to begin put, you know, have them do something, have them, you know, put a provocative prompt on the screen or yeah. have them talk about something and just generate it literally is generating those ideas for sure. Yeah. So uh, I was sorry, just a, in, I was just observing a teacher today and he had a student does first prompt on the board mm -hmm. and it was think about a conflict you recently had with someone and how you resolved it. And then they were writing that thinking that I forget how he had them produce it. I mean, he, they might've just been thinking it through, but right. then after they did that, he opened up with, you know, here's how this connects to today's, you know, to what we're about to do. So taking that thinking, let's play with that. What did you think about? What was your right. conflict? So it's kind of the initial, the inception point of the rest of the lesson. Mm -hmm. Once you get kids to do something first, and in my experience, it was a much more authentic way to teach because I was reacting to what the kids' thinking was. Right. Um, and I, I've said this before. I think it, with as when we've done you know talks together and things, you know, I think the goal is for teachers to use the students' thinking to grow them with instead mm -hmm. of theirs. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like I want to use your thinking to grow you with. Mm -hmm. So get talking, get producing so I can react and shape with your thinking. Yeah. And that's, that is something that we tried to, you know, get in the instruction part of the book is we need to be more reactors than deliverers of information. Mm -hmm. so. 
It's a real, uh, real theme in the book of putting students at the center. Uh, certainly, uh, it doesn't mean, and I think so often teachers misunderstand this idea of being student-centered, meaning it's almost as if it's a zero-sum game. The more, the more centered the students are, the less involved I am, as opposed to understanding that they are partners and that we're trying to bring them into the fold. We still have our expertise. We still have our, our depth of experience, and we know how to get them there. But generating those ideas and getting their thinking flowing, I love that focus on conflict because I think you look, there's, there's so much that can be analyzed across history and so much that's analyzed mm-hmm. in current events today. There's conflict in all sorts of areas, and there's some common themes that emerge out of that. And again, you want to talk about transferability or you know yeah. endurance, if you will, in terms of thinking. I, I love that. Another idea, um, Tony, in the book that I really loved was this focus on student-centered mission statements. Okay, so sure. contrast for us the idea of a student-centered mission statement with a traditional mission statement. And then again, how do we go about developing one? Is it is it developed still by the educators if it's a student-centered? Or or do we have students working alongside of us to create this, this student-centered mission statement? Yeah, I think the last thing you said, that that's a great idea. That wasn't the meaning behind student-centric mission statements, but we do involve our students in our mission statement, vision mm-hmm. statement development. It does, the copy does go to student panels and parent panels to make sure that they have a voice in it. So that, that I think is a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, what we were referring to as far as student-centric mission statement is um, something that uh, we see uh, in, you know, me in particular, I, I it's kind of a, you know, a, a pet peeve as I go to schools and talk and I see a mission statement that says, at you know so and so school, we will develop students who do this. We will make this happen, and you can just see the adult-centric part of it. That students are almost like objects of the amazingness of the adults in the building. And mm-hmm. um, you know, it's you know, whenever I get a chance to work on mission statements and vision statements with schools, I'll say it's not we will develop students who it's our students are. Mm-hmm that's a student-centric mission statement. So, you know, our students are self-reliant, you know, at, at, you know, at, at, in bear country, the, you know, the, the bears at the school are uh, self-motivated, self-generated learners who can advocate for themselves, period. Mm-hmm. No adult in no reference or um, insinuation that there's an adult involved, even though we're there, we're yeah. the gardeners, right? But we want to make every bit of what we do in every crevice scream, it's about the student. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can really, um, you know, I think for most schools, most listeners listening in right now, it's it's not malicious in its intent. It's not meant to necessarily be an egocentric thing. It's just I think for a lot of schools, it would be something that I have to admit, as I was reading the book, um, I'd never thought of that before. Uh, that was an idea that di- I never really thought about framing the mission statement as being student-centered that way. I-, I thought it was a really great idea. And certainly, so I think as listeners, you know, you're listening to to Tony talk about that. It's not about saying, oh, you know, our our no. our, our mission statement is all about our, our no. you know, our being heroes and, and saviors. No, uh, yeah. you know, not at all. I know you're not intending that, Tony. No, it's, I, it's I really mean, about, clear- yeah. yeah. A clarification, I'm glad you bring that up. A clarification on that is it's not necessarily because we're doing what you're saying. It's because the the 
idea of school has always been teacher delivers to kids. Right. So it's, you know, teaching has been a, you know, a teacher to student verb. Mm-hmm. And that's what trickles through that. I think it's just institutional, mm-hmm. you know, course. generational sort of understanding or con- concept of what teaching is that comes yeah. out in mission statements. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, it's just our students are, would be a good place to start with that. That would be yeah. a good um, frame. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I think that's, uh, you know, I can, I, I can see, I think about the schools I've worked in where that would be a great exercise to kind of turn the lens around and, and just say, mm-hmm. you know, this is about our students and what, and what they become, who they become. Uh, and we're there to help facilitate the conditions that make that possible, but we really center them in the yeah. experience. Okay. As we finish up, Tony, uh, you know, I can't have you on the podcast and not talk about assessment, of course, because you and I have presented several times at the same yeah. conferences on assessment, et cetera. But I want to go granular here because I think, you know, we all we often talk about assessment. You and I talk about assessment a lot, but I want to really go granular here because the book is called Small Changes, Big Impact. And one of the questions I often ask participants to consider in a workshop is what's the least you could do to bring about the greatest effect? right? So what, what's one really small thing that you can do that actually has a large impact? So I want to ask you that same question. What is the smallest change to your assessment and grading practices that you implemented that brought about the greatest effect in your classroom? Yeah, I think if you want to get super granular, yep. the f- really the, the thing that I tried one time in 2009, I know the year because it was like a big like, whoa, Mm-hmm. Um, I tried Gus, which is asking kids after each question, if they guessed were unsure or sure mm-hmm. on the question before. Okay. Now the aha I had was I had 90% of my kids getting question one, right. And then they were brutally honest with me saying, Mr. Rival, I had no clue. I guessed. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was 75% of my kids were guessing that first time. I'll never forget those numbers. Cause it was just shocking to me. Right. That. I thought I was a pretty darn good teacher and uh, I was not taking into account the thinking emotions and relationships that were existing inside my classroom. So what Gus represents to me when I talk about Gus in this, tell this story is making your assessments conversational and relational is probably the smallest change you can make on assessments that has a big impact because kids respect that. Like, oh, Mr. Rival really wants to get to know me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not about answer A or, you know, answering A on that question. He's asking me if I guess. That's That resonates with the kids internally that this teacher values who they are. And, and not that you don't, but it's a gesture of that, a uh, visible gesture of that to kids. And, it, and then I branched off of that and I started saying, you know, after half of an exam, I would pause them and say, just write three emotions that you're having right now in the, in the margin. When you're done with that, go back to the test. I would write questions that sounded like I was asking it, not like define the three principles of. It was, yeah, last night I forgot what the three principles of this were. Can you remind me what they were? That's making it more humanistic and relational. We don't talk to people and relate to people like define that. It would be like you asking me these questions to me just going through bullet points. That would be a weird, <laughs> a weird yeah. conversation structure. So I think the this, this small thing with assessment that I, I 
um, think went a long way for me, gave me good insight into who the kids were. It was, um, it was things like us, like making it conversational and relational. Mm-hmm. So. I think, I think that goes back to, you know, something I say a lot and a lot of, I'm not alone in this is that assessment is relationship building at its mm-hmm. core. And that's why I always bristle at these expressions like students have to Maslow before they can bloom and things like that. And I think you can Maslow through bloom. I think that yeah. through right. yeah. the instruction, through the assessment, you're going to build those relationships because you show that at the For core, sure. at the core of the experience is their learning and how you handle their learning, how you handle assessment tells them a lot about yeah. what matters to you and the fact that they matter to you. Yeah, uh, I, I love that. I love that idea of, of engineering those conversations for sure. Uh, fantastic. Um, you know, this has been great, Tony. Uh, we've got two questions as we finish up always sure. on the podcast. Uh, these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, I know you've heard a few of these as well. You can take this in any direction you want to. But the first one is education. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Uh, Besides AP tests. (laughs) (laughs) That keeps everybody up at night, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I I, I would say, you know, it's something, it's still pretty consistent. And I, I think it's making assumptions about, did we make assumptions about kids learning? And did it distort a kid's self concept? Like if we don't get all the evidence and have relational conversations and show that they matter, we might be making assumptions about what the kid can do and who they are. And that then could potentially lead to them, uh, you know, internalizing some sort of distorted sense of self. And that is why I do what I do and why um, I, you know, uh, I think that keeps me up at night. Like do our teachers, did I, like without Gus, I was making assumptions, right? Without right. that Gus practice, I was making assumptions about my kids. And I still think back about those moments like, gosh, how many kids did I make an assumption about because I wasn't acting in a rela- relational way? So mm-hmm. that still keeps me up at night because have we done everything, you know, is is the school I'm working with doing that or is mm-hmm. my colleague or did I do that enough or did I say that the right way when it comes to not making assumptions about kids learning? Because I think that's urgent and critical. Right. So those assumptions, I, you know, it, it, um, they always seem to get us in trouble. Uh, I I've said for years that one of the most egregious things adults do is take kids at face value and just Mm -hmm. sort of assume, make assumptions about what you witness as opposed to accessing that information. And the fact that we go back to that previous question about conversation assessment as conversation gets you insight uh, allows you to understand more intimately where a student is at. So assumptions yeah. are always uh, a dangerous game, if you will, uh, in education for sure. Uh, last mm-hmm. question as we finish up today, Tony. Uh, it's a question about success. Your personal definition of success. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, "What's your definition of success?" How would you answer them? Self-managed life, mm-hmm. self-reliant, self-managed life. It's what I want for my two boys. I have two, I have a 15 year old. He's going through high school right now. Mm -hmm. I want him to live his own life and fly and sustain and set goals. And to me, that's a self-managed life. So I I said earlier in the podcast, it's what I'll say time and time again. I think that is success. I don't think there's a benchmark for, you know, uh, different things. I think it's just, can someone self-sustain to the point where they feel satisfied with their life? Yeah. I love that. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I think that would be uh, a, a success for anybody 
if you're able to to live mm-hmm. the life and guide your life and manage your life and and just live the life that you want to live. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, listeners, you definitely can follow Tony on Twitter. Uh, the Twitter handle is at a rival, uh, all lowercase. Instagram is at a rival 22. You'll find Tony on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, and also uh, websites, www.ebgschools.org. That's evidence-based grading, ebgschools.org. Uh, Tony, quickly tell us a little bit about that site. What will listeners find on that site? Yeah, you'll find uh, it's it's a new site, um, yeah. but it's uh, schools who are implementing evidence-based grading with all a lot of these practices we talked about here today. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I started earlier this year kind of, saying, hey, are you? how far along are you in your journey? Is there anything you want to share with the larger community of standards-based grading and evidence-based grading? So it's just, you know, my attempt to just get some uh, sharing going. Yeah. And I think we've got, you know, I think there's like seven different states on there and they've sent links in for connection to the resource. So hopefully you find it valuable. Yeah, fantastic. I'm sure listeners will uh, get a lot of valuable information about implementation, different strategies, because we know implementing evidence-based grading is not a singular activity. There's a lot of different directions you can go uh, and and choices you get to make. The bad news is there's choices you have to make. The good news is there's choices you get to make. So uh, mm-hmm. I love the fact that you put that together. Uh, fantastic. Uh, we'll have links for all of that in the show notes, uh, listeners, for you to connect there. Uh, Tony, great to have you here today. Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, appreciate always- it. Always Always nice seeing you, Tom, talking yeah. to you. It's always inspiring. So yeah. good Hopefully to see we'll, you. Yeah, you too. Hopefully we'll see you soon. Yep. Take care. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week. I want to talk about what I feel is hands down the most underutilized formative assessment strategy, and that is to simply get the students talking to each other about their learning. Now, last week, I was working with Kaleopu'u Elementary School, which is on Oahu. It's about 30 minutes west of Honolulu. And all week, what we were doing with the different grade levels is we were analyzing standards for their cognitive complexity and their depth of thinking, We were unpacking those standards then and creating learning progressions with those granular targets. How do we create a learning progression from simple to sophisticated? How do we take them from the basic skills all the way to meeting the standard? And then we talked about the importance of having those formative checks along the way. So we would discuss the idea of informal assessments. Like what would we do every day to ensure that we confirm that the students learned what we were teaching them that day, right? And then I've talked about that many times before in the podcast, which is the fact that Every day that you teach, if you know, with your learning goals in mind, there should be some confirmation that the students actually learned what you were teaching them that day. It doesn't have to be formal, it can be very informal. So we came up with so many great strategies. Teachers are talking about exit tickets and um, talking about different, you know, different examples of strategies they could use that are quite common, but just sort of brainstorming what we can do on a daily basis, right? But one thing we kept coming back to. And one thing I kept emphasizing throughout the week over and over again was basically this premise of get the students talking to each other in one way or another. Just get them talking to each other about their learning. So, for example, we were talking about a four corners activity. And usually a four corners activity, you use a statement or assertion and then you pick a corner. So the corners will either be labeled A, B, C, D or the labels will be strongly agree, agree, disagree, strongly disagree or something like that. Right. So, but we 
said, let's, let's see how we can add some dialogue to it. So put the statement up, have the students select their corner. When they get to the corner, partner up, talk to each other about why they chose this corner. Then engineer a whole group discussion around the class to see what each you know, corner is kind of thinking. And then offer the opportunity for students to change corners should their minds have been changed. And, and then we would ask the students to articulate, if, if you did change corners, then why? What motivated you? What are you thinking now? So this constant focus with this four corners activity, which is a great movement activity in classroom, but this constant focus on thinking aloud, right? And, and creating an atmosphere where dialogue is really common and sort of a default. So get them talking because there are so many reasons why talking to each other has such a benefit in the classroom. First, of course, we know that when students talk about their learning, it deepens their understanding and makes their thinking visible, right? Where they are in the learning is already in the room. We just need access to it. So they're at a certain place in their learning. We just need to know that. So as you listen to your students talk, talk to one another, you're going to hear the understandings and the misunderstandings. As they co-create meaning, you're going to hear whether or not they're on or off point. And that, of course, allows you to be more instructionally agile, to make those real-time maneuvers should it be necessary. And it's a much more efficient way to gain access to what students are thinking, right? If you, if you always default to extended written responses or anything that's tangible, it's, it's going to take more time, right? The allure of written responses is that they are uh, asynchronous, right? The students can produce them, we can consume them separately, and, and there is an advantage to that at times. But we also know that for most students, they'll probably be far more expressive orally than they will be in written or typed format. So you're probably going to gain more access or deeper access to their thinking if you simply have them talk about their understanding. Now, another benefit to engineering these conversations and having students talk to each other is that it gives students access to other students' thinking. Right? So if learning is always internal, I never have the chance to check my thinking with others. So if I'm struggling uh, and I never have a chance to hear what other people are thinking, I don't know if they're struggling. I don't know if they've got it. I, I don't know any of that. But if I'm struggling to understand a concept and I listen to two or three other people in my group talk about that concept, then it's going to help me gain greater clarity around that concept. Or it's going to help me understand what the right strategy is to approach the problem. Or it's going to give me access to different perspectives on what maybe the issue is, whatever, whatever we're working on, right? Now, I know I led this segment by saying get them talking, but another iteration of that is get them to listen to one another, right? Listening to how others process information or how they make sense of a challenge. All of that can be tremendously helpful for an individual learner as well. You know, student thinking is often silent, and yet so much of the student's thinking could be brought to the forefront to help all learners make meaningful connections to what they're learning. So, of course, we need to be intentional about what thinking we bring to the forefront. So that's where we need to be specific with our prompts or our discussion starters. I mean, they're of course, can be time for the proverbial, you know, talk amongst yourselves or what are you thinking? Those sort of open-ended prompts. And, and there's a, you know, that's, that's fine. And there, there's a place for that. But there's often more productivity and more substance to the conversations when we specifically set the stage for that conversation. So consider what you want them to think about. Not, not what you want them to say and not what you want them to actually think, but what you want them to think about. Ask them a specific question or give them a specific prompt 
to draw those specifics out of the learners. I just think the more specific you are with your prompt, the more precise you are, the more granular you are, uh, the more likely the conversations will be substantive. Now, another benefit to getting students to talk about each other are these natural opportunities to teach and reinforce collaboration. Now, you can certainly incorporate um, speaking and listening standards into these expectations of these conversations as well, and not to make them so monumental, but just to give a little formality and substance to the dialogue that students might be having. Now, if it's a quick conversation, then maybe not so much, but certainly at any time we are collaborating, there is speaking and there is listening. Like if you look at um, SL 5.1 of the Common Core Standards, it says, engage effectively in a range of collaborative discussions, one-on-one -on -one, groups, teacher-led, with diverse partners on topics and texts, uh, building on others' ideas and expressing. So that's a fifth grade standard, uh, but that standard runs fairly longitudinally through the grade levels. So as you circulate and listen to the conversations about the learning, and you're going to hear the understandings and misunderstandings of their overall thinking, you are also creating an opportunity to observe how they collaborate and how they think together. Like how do they handle differences of opinion? Not just disagreement of ideas, but can we respectfully disagree without getting personal? I mean, not every conversation is going to go to that level of intensity, sure, but some will. So there'll always be an opportunity to observe how they handle conflict, how they handle disagreement, how do they come to consensus, what is the strategy of the group, things like that. Now, I, I know it's cliche to say we live in a connected, interdependent world, but it is true. Very little these days happens in isolation. So again, the more we can get them to formally or even informally talk to each other, the more they'll get used to talking to each other about substantive topics, right? Most students are fairly social, but that's not the point here. When you're being social, there isn't the same sort of intellectual risk. There's risk, of course, in being social and, and the social dynamic for students is risky at times. I get that. But what I'm saying is that there isn't the same risk as you know, academically, as when I make my academic thinking available to you, right? That takes a bit of practice, um, both to be comfortable with collaboration itself, but also comfortable with the risk of sharing my thoughts publicly, right? Being publicly wrong makes me vulnerable, and being open to that is something we have to nurture. So especially in a situation where if I'm a learner and I lack confidence or I worry whether my thoughts are going to be ridiculed, that makes me hesitant. So we've got to kind of nurture this along a little bit and make it frequent so that it becomes kind of a, a default approach to how we learn. When, when, when collaboration not only becomes the habit, but it is the desirable way to learn, students themselves kind of instinctively lean into those conversations, whether they're quick conversations or whether they're extensive conversations. We've got a shared space where all learners that will experience an enhanced learning opportunity. And we're not going to ever get there if collaboration is something that happens on occasion or something that we do just to shake things up, right? It needs to become kind of a, a, a regular thing. There's also the benefit uh, for English language learners, right? English learners uh, benefit from bringing this thinking to the forefront. This always reminds me of my experience with my mother. Um, my mother was born in 1934. She immigrated to Canada uh, from Germany in 1956. She passed away in 2008 at the age of 74. So when you do the math on her life, 
She spent 22 years, the first 22 years of her life living in Germany. She spent the next 52 years living in Canada. And during that era of immigration, that era was definitely about assimilation. So both my parents actively sought to learn English as fast as possible and, and sort of be English speaking. So 70% of her life was spent in a predominantly English speaking country. And my mom's English was actually pretty good for someone who started picking it up uh, in her 20s. Things are different now, right? Um, but, but back then it was assimilation into, um, into English as the language. Now, because English is often taught in schools overseas uh, and, and around the world, English is kind of everybody's second language. And I've learned that as I've traveled overseas, that as an English speaker, you, you are very advantaged when you travel because it, everyone's default second language is English. But back then it was different, right? My, my mom didn't learn English until, until then. But here's, here's my point. Late in life, I remember having this conversation with my mom about language. I'm not exactly sure how it came up, but she told me something that I found very interesting and curious at the time. Because um, she used to always say to me, you know, we sort of joke about her accent and things like that. And she used to always say to me, those who speak only one language often make fun of those who speak two. Uh, when, you know, so when something funny would come up, you know, some limited vocabulary or things like that. But here's the point. Again, late in life, she told me this. She said, even though I learned English and English almost became her first language, her first spoken language, she said, I still think in German. She said that she still thinks predominantly in German. And I asked her what that meant um, because I just thought, well, you know, whatever you speak is what you think in. But, but she told me that German is still her default in terms of how she processes information. And then she does the translation in her head before she speaks. And I found that really interesting for her to say that. She said not always, but she told me uh, far more often than not, that's the way it plays out for her. Especially when she's trying to figure something out. That, that was something where she thought in German. So it, it, it gets me thinking about the fact that our English language learners don't think in English. So to hear others think and process in English can only be an enhancement, right? This is not about losing their culture or their language or anything like that. But we as teachers often ask them to think in English or whatever the language of instruction is, right? So if you were uh, uh, new to Canada and you were in a school, say, for example, in Quebec, you might be in a French-speaking school. So we're asking you to think in French or something like that. So whatever the, 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 the main language of instruction is, is really what I'm referring to here. Because our prompts are going to be in that language, and there is some vocabulary that does not translate. I remember my parents telling me this all the time, that there are certain words that just don't translate into English. So what the students get is this peer-to-peer -peer modeling that, again, is an added benefit. Listening to others think, listening to them process, listening to them hypothesize can only add to their experiences, right? Again, not every conversation is going to be that epic, but the more they talk, the more the ELs gain exposure to other ways of thinking, other people's thinking, and how you process information uh, in the language of instruction, right? And again, you are going to hear that as you circulate around the room. And not to mention the fact that for language learners, often conversational fluency is far more accelerated than academic language proficiency. So even if they're using non-academic language in the conversation, you're still hearing them express themselves and you can infer what they mean by that. And another benefit, of course, finally, is we can truly live the all means all mantra. 
if all means all, and we live by that, then taking a shared responsibility for everyone's learning is what our classroom needs to be about. Creating the opportunity for contribution to the greater good, exemplifying that we're all in this together, right? That it's not you versus me, but it's us versus the learning. That can go a long way to breaking down this perceived competitiveness that can often emerge in schools. Now, of course, they'll have to eventually demonstrate their learning as individuals. And that's the summative purpose. I get that. But while they're learning, the formative purpose, we have to be purposeful about breaking down the unhealthy kind of counterproductive mindset of competitiveness around learning. I know that's easier said than done. And I don't know we don't have total control over that because students think independently and their parents, their families influences all around them. So we know we don't have total control over that, but we've got to do our part so that we can break that down. So students see this idea that we're all contributing to everyone's learning, everyone's thinking, everyone's greater good. Will differences emerge in summative moments and and, and bodies of evidence? Probably. I don't want to predict that ahead of time, but common sense and experience would tell us that that's where that would emerge. But the idea that we contribute to the greater good, I think, is something we should really consider. Sometimes it's important for students to think on their own and process on their own. Uh, I get that. But so much more often, it's only going to enhance their experience and accelerate their understanding of the learning when they can interact with their classmates, gain access to what others are thinking to kind of create this shared meaning. And again, the most underutilized formative assessment strategy for teachers is to get students talking to each other. Nothing needs to be tangible or quantified. You hear them talking and you'll know what to do next. That is the most organic iteration of formative assessment. To hear them talk, to he- gather that evidence or to hear what their, their thinking is and to ad- make an adjustment instructionally should it be necessary or you may just confirm that what you had planned to do next is in fact what the students are ready for. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for links for the upcoming professional learning events happening this month, but also this summer. Um, You can check the show notes for that, of course. Next week, my guest will be Morgan Michael. Morgan is the author of the recently released book, From Burnt Out to Fired Up, Reigniting Your Passion for Teaching. So that's going to be the focus of our conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform that allows that would be helpful to grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.